Have you ever thought what it would be like to go to a new city and try to gather a group of people with starting a brand new church? I, I, I can't even begin to imagine what that would entail. It's a lot. And we're beginning as a church family here to think about what it would be like for Mitchell Road to, to help with a, a local or regional daughter church. It's happened before, but a new church uh, on the horizon may be a possibility. The county is growing like crazy. It, it seems timely. So we've had, had the privilege of getting to know Jacob Morrison, who's going to be preaching for us in just a moment. Jacob and his wife Lizzie, their three young kids, moved in May of this year to High Point, North Carolina. It's a city of about 100,000 people. There's no PCA church there. Uh, there's a university. There's uh, the furniture industry that has uh, seen better days. And yet, uh, a couple of weeks a year, there's a big uh, furniture market there. So that brings life to the city. There's people moving in from other uh, surrounding communities. It just seems ripe for a church plant. So Mitchell Road has had the, the privilege of financially partnering with Jacob and his family. And uh, he's from Greenville. He's been here about 10 years. He was uh, a pastor on staff at a, a sister PCA church in town here. And now they're living in High Point. Uh, they've got young kids. Uh, they've got a brand newborn, a little girl who's three weeks old. I can't believe you're here today. It's so <laughs> glad that you're wide awake uh, with the three-week-old. But uh, what a joy to welcome Jacob Morrison to our pulpit today. You'll be blessed as he comes. Open the word for us, Jacob. Thank you, Jack. Go ahead and turn your copy to God's Word to Isaiah 52. Looking at Isaiah 52 through 53 this morning. As you're opening there, greetings from High Point. We have uh, been there for just a couple of months, two and a half months. Uh, but the Lord has been gracious to us in that we have, uh, we've, got fa- we've got friends, neighbors that love us. Uh, the Lord's been gracious in providing friendship and opportunity. And he sustained us. Uh, three weeks ago, we had uh, the birth of our daughter, Molly Catherine Morrison. And I'm so glad to, to, to welcome her into the world. Uh, but I'm also glad for the... I actually get stopped at my parents' house last night in town. So I got a full night's sleep. Uh, so I'm thankful for that. Uh, our sermon text, Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, going through chapter 53. What I'm about to read to you is... God's word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and ask the Lord might bless the the hearing, the seeing, the reading, and now the teaching of the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We're thankful that your word is powerful, that it goes out and does not return void. That is your promise to us, and we lean on that now this morning. Would you use that, your spirit, to open our eyes, unclog ears, soften our hearts to your truth, to your power that is found in your word through your son, Jesus Christ, the servant in whose name we pray. Amen. So enigmas are everywhere. Enigmas are everywhere, and the one I hear all the time, especially after people get to know me and they meet my wife, the, the one I hear all the time is, how did you end up with her? Uh, what did she see in you? Uh, and if you're a guy here, you've probably uh, been asked that at one point or the other. And in our few months of living in High Point, we have come across a number of people who call themselves former church people And they are also puzzled. They're puzzled by what we are doing. Why? Why would you plant a church here? We've really been asked that. It puzzles them. An enigma is something that is mysterious, something that is difficult to understand, something that is hard for us to wrap our mind around. And enigmas lend themselves to people creating theories in order to answer those puzzling questions. For example... She's with him because he's rich. Nope. Not, not quite. There is this enigma that seems, though, to surround the gospel. People have a hard time wrapping their heads and their minds around it, and so they create their own theories as to what Christianity and the gospel really is. And you've heard these theories before. They're transactional theories. Like, if I act a certain way, Jesus will love me. If I do these things, I will be rewarded with riches, or my children will listen and obey me and not go off the rails because I've earned it. It's transactional theory. There are other theories of Christianity that answer people's questions, their puzzling questions. 
and they turn into platitudes, like God desires me to be happy, God is just happy and peaceful and loving. Uh, They're very shallow. I've run across uh, all of these in my time in ministry in Greenville and in High Point. I'm sure you've come across them as well. These theories of what Christianity are all about are prevalent. And you ever wonder why? Why are these enigmas of the gospel and these theories, what, why? Why is it happening? Well, our text from Isaiah 52 and 53 give us a remarkable insight as to why the gospel appears to be an enigma to people, unbelievers and even believers at times. Why? Why is it it's so puzzling? Because there is a tension present that makes us uncomfortable. There is a problem we face daily in, in believing these words from Paul from Romans 4 that, that God justifies the ungodly. Why would he do that? Isn't that puzzling? How could he ever do that? Well, we see how here in this text. And he lays it out for us this morning in the enigma of the exaltation, the substitution and the satisfaction of the suffering servant. Those are my three points, because I'm a Presbyterian. The exaltation, the substitution, the satisfaction of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Let's start by looking first, then, at the exaltation, the enigma of exaltation, which we see starting at the end of chapter 52, going into 53. And as you turn there and look there, let's remember what you have been reading thus far in your reading through the Bible this year. You've spent a lot of time in Isaiah this week. What have you been reading this week in Isaiah? Promises. Look at Isaiah 51. Think about these promises that, he, that, that the prophet says, Look to the rock from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham and Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. There's a promise. The Lord comforts Zion. Joy and gladness will be found in her. That's a promise. Give ear to me, my nation. I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. That's a promise. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Promise. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their reviling. My righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. A promise. This is just a glimpse of the promises of Isaiah 51. Of the call to remember the promises of God that were made all the way back in Genesis and trace all the way through the scriptures that continue on to today. Remember those. Trust those. Because there's only one, there will be one coming, a suffering servant who will bring about all of those promises to fruition. And how will he do it? Look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So how does he bring about these promises? He acts wisely. Literally, it it is he knows what needs to be done in order to bring about the intended results, and he does it. That's what it means to act wisely. And he acts wisely, and because of that, what happens? He is exalted. Notice this exaltation has a threefold aspect to it. He is high. He is lifted up. He is exalted. It's this majestic, kingly idea. It sounds incredible, doesn't it? So where's the enigma in this exaltation? Verse 14. The one who is high and exalted and lifted up has been so marred, so disfigured, that he doesn't even look human. Do you see that? 
One writer, of this ver- one writer wrote of this verse that the servant's sufferings brought such a disfigurement that those who saw it said not only is this he, but is this human? How can the Redeemer of Israel, the one who guarantees the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how can the exalted one not look like a king, but like this? How does that happen? Look at verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. That word sprinkle, if you've been reading through uh, the, old, uh, the Bible, you'll realize the word sprinkle has some serious Old Testament connotations. And as you read these words, what comes to mind might be the sprinkling of bulls and goats' blood in the sacrificial system. The priestly sacrificial action. That blood was shed and then sprinkled. And what does that signify? But atonement. Blood shed to make the unclean clean in the presence of God. And now the nations are made clean. How? We are made clean by the exalted servant, the exalted Jesus being beaten and then crucified and through his blood being shed, we are cleansed. We are perfectly cleansed through a sprinkling of his blood on his people. It is something so incredible. It is something so astonishing that you see here in verse 15 that it leaves the kings to stand in silence, open mouth, dumbstruck, and in awe. Do you see that? They have no response. Y'all, the reality that left the kings of nations dumbfounded is true for us here this morning as well. How are you and I healed from our sin? Where is our hope for forgiveness and redemption? Only by the sprinkling of blood. By being washed in the blood of our disfigured and marred Christ. What do you do with that? Look to verse 13. Because he did this, he shall be high and lifted up and exalted. Our response to the work of the servant acting wisely has to lead to an exalting of him, a worshiping the one for who our sake became so marred in appearance that it was beyond semblance. Worship him for the way he loves you. Greater love has no, love than, has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. He has loved you, and because of that, we worship him. What does that worship look like? We talked about it already this morning in Philippians 2 and in 1 Peter. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ as Lord. He became marred, and he loved us so much, he became marred so that we might bow the knee and worship him. How do we do that? 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We exalt him and live for him, the exalted one. Is that how you're living this morning? We also see the enigma of exaltation because of how the servant is described uh, before his death on the cross. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 53. Look there with me for a moment where we see the servant described how. Like some sculpted human specimen who's been doing CrossFit every single day preparing for this moment on the cross. No, 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 no. What does Isaiah say? As one who grew up like a normal human being, that is, like a young plant that grows. You ever watched a young plant grow? 
I haven't. You know why? It's boring. And this young plant was not one that you thought of as all-powerful, as the all-powerful redeemer of the world. No, it describes him how in verses 2 and 3. No form or majesty that we should desire him. That is to say, he was unimpressive in all of his outward appearances. He was not ruggedly good-looking. He wasn't that good-looking hero. He did not look majestic or inspiring. In fact, looking at verse 3, we see him as one who is shunned by society. Look at the end of verse 3. That word, esteemed. We esteemed him not. That's an, that's an accounting term. That means reckoning of value. One commentator says that the people appraised what they saw of this man and it added up to nothing. He was but a man of sorrow and pain. And yet, and all of this, this, all of this description, what does it say about the servant in verse 1? This disfigured, unimpressive, summed up as nothing. What does it say about him in verse 1? That he is the arm of the Lord. Again, think back to your readings in Isaiah this week. Where have you seen that phrase, the arm of the Lord? Where have you seen that this week? In Isaiah 51.9, the arm of the Lord is the one who dries up the sea and makes a way for the exodus. In Isaiah 52, he bears his holy arm before, eyes of all, before the eyes of all the nations as he prepares to act for his people. And now we see it here. The arm of the Lord. Who would have believed that such a description of power and might and justice would be linked to one who is esteemed and appraised as worthless? Isn't that crazy? Why is this so important to get? Well, we are inundated with this storyline that the powerful, the noble, the gritty warrior will save the day. And that is who we are to look to. That's who we are to expect for salvation. One thing we did when we first moved to High Point, uh, we went with our neighbors on a double date to the movies. Uh, You might have gone to the movies recently, and what did you see? But you saw Top Gun Maverick. So we go to see this movie, and take a guess, who represents America's top fighter pilots? But the brash, the bold, the powerful, good-looking pilots, and Tom Cruise, who still looks good at 60 years old. And when Maverick flies into battle, you really do believe that he could single-handedly defeat the Soviets again. It's just unbelievable. We're trained to expect that. Our expectations of what a Savior is are challenged, though, here in Isaiah. We have to put our hope not in the good-looking, well-known rabbi. We cannot put our hope in ideals or movements, but in the one who people didn't think twice about. Is that where your hope is this morning? Because if it's not in Jesus... If it's not in him alone, that hope you have is going to leave you hopeless. The one who was esteemed not, we are called to esteem, to exalt, and to put our hope and trust in. Why? Because that servant is to be our substitute. So let's turn now and look at that substitution of the servant. Our second point, we see that in verses 4 through 9. That's here in verse 4 that we get to the center of the passage. And that center is literal and figurative, like it's the heart of the passage, but it's also literally the heart of the passage. 
literal in that 52.13 to the end of chapter 53. It's made up of these stanzas of three verses. And this is like the center of those. This is the apex. This is the crux. And it's there that we get answers to questions like, why was this servant who was lifted up, why was he so disfigured? Why was he a man of sorrows acquainted with grief? Why? Well, the answer is that it wasn't because he was being punished by God. No, it was the arm of the Lord taking our place. That's why. We see that especially in verses 4 through 6. This stark contrast being made between the, the he and the we. Just look there. What did he alone do for you and me? He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. We esteemed him. We appraised him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And yet, he substitutes himself in our place. And that substitution is on full display. We see that in verses 5 and 6, where well, he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Do you see that substitution? What we did, he alone paid for. We, in our sheep-like stupidity, wander, going astray, having turned to our self-seeking, idolatrous ways. And what happens? Yahweh, God, has laid on his son, his servant, the iniquity of us all. One man puts it like this. The servant is the solution of the Lord to the needs of sinners. Because what do we receive? Look at verse 5. Peace. And healing. Peace and healing. We are restored in our relationship with God. We have real, full, total cleansing because of the one who took on our chastisement. Now, don't let the beard fool you and the gray fool you. I'm still kind of young, and I don't use the word chastisement very often. And so I had to look up what that word meant. You know what that word means? Punishment. Y'all... Jesus endured the punishment we deserve, and he gives us the the peace he deserved. The Lord bore the stripes of wrath so that we may be made whole, healed, and restored. I don't know about you, but I read that, and I hear that, and I struggle with that. And I struggle mainly because I think this, I doubt that I can be restored. I doubt I really can fully be forgiven for all of my sin. What about the darkest of my, of my past? What about the really shameful parts? You ever struggle with that? If that's you this morning, let me point you to two things. First, the words of songs. Uh, there's the song, It Is Well With My Soul. You ever heard that one? Remember that one? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but in whole is nails to the cross and what? I bear it no more. That's powerful. What about the song we sang this morning? Those he saves are his delight, precious in his holy sight. He'll not let my soul be lost, bought by him at such a cost that justice has been fully satisfied and he is holding us fast. Y'all, that is powerful. Besides songs, God's word is really powerful too. Think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we, in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Y'all, I struggle because I don't believe God can take all of my sin and forgive all of it. But we have to understand this. The cross tells us this. Jesus didn't just take the small bits of your sin, but all of it. He bore all of it. And it cost him dearly. It cost him his life. But in that, your sin and my sin has totally and fully been paid for by the costly blood of Jesus. And you know what that means? Because Jesus substitutes himself, he bore the iniquity of us all. Because of that, we don't have to appease God for forgiveness. We don't have to say, hey, look at what I'm trying to do for you. Are you you satisfied with that? Will you forgive me now? No, no, no. We can accept that what Christ has done for, for what it is, a display of love more powerful and more freeing than we ever dare imagine. Paul says it like this in Romans 5. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe God loves this much? That he has borne all of your sin and shame on his son and given you peace and healing? One more thing I want us to see about this substitute is that he wasn't dragged, kicking and screaming uh, into taking our place. How did he face our wrath? Silently, with strength and innocence. To put it in a word, he faced, he faced the cross perfectly. And we see that in verses 7 through 9. Look there to see what I mean. First, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see, he was silent. I asked some friends who raise livestock, uh, I, I asked them a question this week. Hey, your animals, do they know what's about to happen to them? Do they know like, they're about to be led to the processor? And you know what they, they did? They looked at me like I was insane. And they're like, it's a cow. He's looking for his next meal. They're not wondering anything. That's to say, they aren't protesting as you lead them to the butcher. They aren't putting up a fight because they, they don't comprehend what's going on. They don't comprehend, I'm about to be made into a brisket. I'm about to be a pork butt. They don't comprehend it. What's incredible is that what we read, what Jesus does, that he doesn't open his mouth, but is silent. As we read that, we know he does comprehend what's happening. He knows exactly what is happening. He's told his disciples multiple times in the Gospels, I am going to die. Three times we read about in Luke. He comprehended what the cross meant. He comprehended what it would cost, and he embraced it. He became the sacrificial lamb led to be slain. His blood poured out and sprinkled out on his people. Isaiah is saying this servant is going to put an end to the constant sacrificing for he will be the final and perfect lamb that will be sacrificed and he comprehends and submits himself to sacrifice for you and for me. Do you know what that is? That is strength. That is strength. And yet what do the the mockers and scoffers say? say to him at the cross. They cry out, if you are the king of Israel, come down from the cross and then we'll believe you. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's weak. They saw the servant on the cross as weakness, and yet, y'all, it is the most amazing display of strength this world has ever seen. 
And not only do we see it as strength, the cross is injustice as well. Injustice because the only one who was ever innocent was put to death at the hands he came, the ones he came to save. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah is saying, this servant really was the perfect substitute. He was without stain. He was without blemish. He was innocent. And he identified our need and he voluntarily, knowingly comprehended and took on our place of wrath so that we might be healed and have peace. I want you to hear that and remember these two things. As you think about this substitute. First, that the cross is powerful because of the innocence that was hung on it. If Jesus was just a decent guy, the cross has no power. But because he is perfect, because he is the spotless, unblemished lamb of God, the suffering servant that was prophesied, he is our perfect substitute, and it has power. The pastor said it like this, Who but Jesus has the moral majesty to serve you as your substitute? Only innocent sufferings can atone for guilty sufferings. That is, only innocent can pay the price of guilty. The cross is power. And second, What does that innocent, suffering servant say to us? Get yourself together. Approach me. Maybe we'll talk about forgiving you. No, 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 no. What do you say to us in Matthew 11? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you are a Christian here this morning, let me ask, do you have rest in your soul? because of what the substitute has done for you? Do you trust in what the substitute has done, or are you trying to keep on adding to that? And if you're not a believer here this morning, what is it that you hope for for redemption? What is it that you're looking for as your substitute for healing, for peace? Let's close this morning by looking at the final stanza, verses 10 through 12, where we see the satisfaction of the servant. And if you start reading verse 10, you might think satisfaction is a weird idea to use, especially uh, when we start out verse 10 by reading that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Hmm. But notice that the end of verse, 11, uh, verse 10 also talks of the will of the Lord, and in that the servant shall prosper in his hand. Well, what has happened here? Well, Isaiah doesn't just lay it out exactly and say it, but here's what we see. The servant that was crushed is alive. In verse 10, he sees his offspring and he is working out the works of God and his people. Why? Because he's alive. In verse 11, he is no longer called despised or cut off, but righteous. Why? Because he's alive. In verse 12, he is the one who reaps the spoils. Why? Because he's alive. He is alive. And out of the anguish of his soul that he experienced at the cross, he shall see and be satisfied. His anguish at the cross is met with satisfaction. Why? The author of Hebrews says it like this in chapter 12. For the joy that was set before him, he endures the cross. What was that joy? Hebrews 12 goes on to tell us that he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And now, and now, Ray Orland puts it, Jesus Christ is acting as the executor of the saving will of God for our guilty human race. He isn't suffering anymore. His offering for sin was complete. And right now today, all over the world, he's enjoying the satisfaction, the sheer pleasure of making many ungodly people to be accounted 
righteous. That those sheep who have gone astray are no longer sheep without a shepherd. No, they have returned as sons. The enigma of the gospel of what Paul said in Romans 4, that God justifies the ungodly. How can this be? How can this be? Except for a substitute who takes on all of your guilt, all of your sin and shame, and he gives us his righteousness in return. And so my invitation to you this morning is this, to take your sin for the first time or for like the thousandth time this week, take that to Jesus and to lay it at the cross and trust that what he says in his word is true, that he takes your sin and he separates it as far as the east is from the west. That if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Y'all, he cleanses us by substituting himself, the exalted one who is high and lifted up for you and for me. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, how overwhelmed we, we are, we, can, we consider who we are, and yet you love us so much that you have cleansed us